Welcome to another edition of A Random Walk with Ben Coleman. I'm here with my friend, Julissa Carella. We met at the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program a couple of years ago and was immediately taken with her leadership abilities and skills in running organizations. And she has a fantastic story that I'm looking forward to diving into tonight. So Julissa, thanks so much for taking the time tonight. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with, you know, how you got into the construction industry. I know, you, you know, there's some family background, but what was the first thing that, that brought you to this place? Um, I, I honestly don't think that um, I grew up thinking I want to get into the construction industry. That, that was not my lifelong dream, right? Um, when I was going to college, um, I, I didn't have anybody who really to guide me in when I was at school and I was the first generation in the university level and so um, I just kind of thought you know what am I going to do and I I originally wanted to go to law school so I was pre-law for the first year and then um, I went to work for um, a, a law office just we wanted to get my feet wet and learned about it and and I really didn't enjoy it and I thought okay that got to switch <laughs> majors and uh, I ended up taking an accounting class in the summer and I aced it. It was super easy. And I thought, oh, okay, I got to do business because this was super easy. And, uh, and to say accounting is easy. I mean, you know, that's not typical, right? And so um, I did accounting and, uh, and then I started doing research as a student. And I, and I just thought, you know, in, in, in business, I could, I could run, help run any type of business, not just you know, anything in particular, I never thought banking or anything, but I really wanted to be involved with the, you know, the business side. And um, I started working for a uh, architect who was um, doing design build uh, projects. And so then I was getting into the construction and the, and the architectural side of financial management. And uh, I totally loved it. And um, after that, I went to work for a uh, general contractor and, uh, I was there eight years and I became their vice president of finance administration. And I was in the ins and outs of everything to do with the, you know, the finance side, but risk management and HR of a construction company. And uh, I just really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And when I turned 35, I started my own company and, you know, with $75,000 of my 401k, it was not a lot of money, but, I was 35 years old and I just thought I'm going to do this. That's incredible. Well, I want to get in that story in a little bit, but maybe take us back. You mentioned you were the first generation college student from your family. Uh, what was it like growing up that kind of gave you the inspiration to, to be the first one to, to take that journey? Um, I guess I just was looking for, you know, something else. Right. And mm -hmm. um, I, I was raised with uh, four brothers and, and my mom and my, my parents split up when I was a teenager. So we were really young and my mother with five children, it was, it was not easy. Um, and uh, I just, I, I knew I didn't want to get married. I had just recently gone through my parents' divorce and it was not, it was, it was tough, you know, and uh, I was looking for what else could I do. And, and uh, I just, you know, I was smart enough and I just started applying for schools and, and, you know, I got in. And so I was happy to, I was actually at uh, St. Mary's university and I was not an A student. So I don't know how I got selected. It was probably one of those hardship things, you know, <laughs> uh -huh. but it, you know, it was a major opportunity and I, I completely loved it. I mean, amazing. No, that's fantastic. And so, you know, going to college, sounds like you had, uh, you know, about a decade of getting the experience to get into the construction industry. And that 35, you mentioned, hey, take the $75,000 and build your own company. That, that's quite a leap of faith. What, what was that first year like as you were building out your construction company? It was tough. Um, I started the company in 2006, August 15th of 2006. I remember clearly. Um, and I was looking for one client that I could, you know, do construction for and and I was looking for a developer, somebody who was looking for a contractor to do jobs. And I did nine projects in a row for one developer. And then the recession hit and there was no lending going on for private jobs. And it was tough. Uh, and I immediately remember thinking, what am I gonna do? 
and I already had a small crew of workers. And um, when you're an entrepreneur, you carry that load of these, you know, they're my responsibility. And I uh, immediately looked at uh, federal certifications and I got into the federal arena of projects, which is probably the toughest thing that anybody could do when you're a small business trying to get in. Uh, but it was probably the smartest thing I ever did, not realizing that's what it was. And um, it really allowed me to build my own portfolio of projects because they had set aside jobs for small businesses. And for a woman in construction, it was like rare. They were like, we have zero participation. Can you help <laughs> us out? And I was like, yes, just give me a chance, you know. Um, so, so what yeah. made the, the federal side so challenging? You mentioned that it was a difficult, but it made a great decision. What, what, was the, what was the issue or was the challenges there? Well, I mean, if you think of it, I, I, you know, I was a past, uh, an accountant. I, I'm, a, I'm a business manager. I know how to do that. Um, I had been doing construction. I knew how to do that. You can manage your projects. But when you start doing work for the federal government, it's very process driven. And there's nowhere to go to find out what the steps are. So you have to like, just do it. And there's no guidance. So it's really, really tough. You got to read everything. And then you feel like, am I doing it right? And they don't really say yes or no, which is the hardest thing. Um, but um, I physically said, I'm going to do it myself before I hand it off to anybody else, because I want it to really learn the steps and the process. And um, once I got through one project, I was like, okay, these are the 300 steps we got to go through and we got it. Um, so after that, it just became super easy for the next projects. But um, I could understand how some people would struggle with it, you know, mm -hmm. it's not easy. So a lot of our listeners may be unfamiliar with the construction industry. I think I am as well. Can you walk us through, okay, you want to build a building, you want to get the permits. What, what is the steps that you have to take and how long does it take to actually do one of these projects? It really depends on, um, it, it depends on whether you're doing a brand new startup construction project um, or if you're doing renovations to an existing building. It really depends, right? But when you do it with the federal government or when you do it with the Corps of Engineers, um, there's so many more inspections that have to happen. So it just extends the schedule, you know, a lot more. Um, but, you know, a typical project could be nine months of, you know, a, a renovation of ground up could be about 11 months, um, you know, through process of, of permitting and all that stuff. So it takes a while. And what are, the what are the type of individuals that you employ in your company? Is it, is it purely just the constructors working on the ground? Are there other, other, other you know, capabilities that you guys bring to the table? No, and, and a lot of the times people think that construction companies only have, you know, ditch diggers and, you know, that it, that's not true at all. I mean, there are so many professionals in the industry. Um, for instance, you know, we need... Um, we have like an art, our team has a, a group of estimators who are pricing, you know, they take the drawings, they split them up, they dig into them and they put together a cost proposal for the whole project. You get a budget, right? We also have a, a proposal writer who has to put together the actual marketing material to submit this proposal because you have to show qualifications and past experience and you really have to be good about marketing. Um, then you have, you know, the, the typical accountants got to do payrolls, got to do, you know, all the taxes and stuff. Um, then you got project managers who manage the projects. And then you have superintendents on site who coordinate the projects. And then we have safety managers. We have quality control inspectors. And then you get to the construction workers, right? And there's yep. levels from carpenters to foremen to uh, helpers to... Um, and that's just in, in our company, but then you go into all the trades, electricians and HVAC and, you know, all the licensed trade. And it's just, it's such a huge dynamic industry that it's so, um, it's so skilled and so smart the way that it's structured and the way, what I always enjoyed about it was the fact that there were so many companies that have to come together and coordinate to build a building. 
It's not just, you know, one company. There's one company in charge managing, but the coordination skills that have to happen to make everything line up and, and turn that switch and it works, it's a really big coordination thing that happens. And so I completely am impressed with the way it's so professionally done. Um, it's not your typical pickup truck guy that comes in <laughs> and is going to help build a deck or something. It's, it's truly industrial, you know, commercial building that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you were first starting in 2006, how did you kind of figure out how to make all this stuff work, all these pieces together? Um, I, um, I was around it. Um, you know, I had been in the industry today. I've been in the industry 20, 24 years. Mm -hmm. Um, but back then 14 years ago, um, I had just been around so much that I knew, uh, what everybody did, the roles they play. I love being a part. I would sit in and I just wanted to be a fly in the room just to, to hear and learn. And, and, um, it was, it was, it was a lot to do with people management and time management. And, you know, that has to happen in order for these projects to happen on time. And, uh, and it's money management on top of it. You can't just go spend all this money on inventory. You got to be very precise to keep that budget under budget, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And you, you know, you mentioned kind of being, uh, an unusual owner in the sense that not many women are running construction businesses. Uh, how has that dynamic been in, in, since you, since you were the founder? Um, at the, at the beginning, um, 14 years ago, there was probably less than a handful of women owned businesses that I knew in the state of Texas. It, it was not a lot. Um, um, but those of us who were, I mean, we were all in, like we were, you know, we didn't, I like, as for me, I know I never thought of it as um, I'm a woman in construction. I mean, I would have ran a flower shop the same way. I just thought it, and I'm running a business and, and, you know, there are ins and outs and we have responsibilities and we got to make it happen whatever it takes. And if we do something wrong, we have to fix it, you know, and, um, I don't, I don't know. It, it was, uh, it was challenging at sometimes I had, um, you know, a new, what the, I think the hardest part was really finding new clients, right? Because they didn't know you right away. And they were like, well, now I don't want to do a woman. Like, I just need a guy who can take care of things. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I had to really work on marketing. Like I really had to sell my past projects and my past clients who would speak for me. Um, and that's really how I expanded was by those referrals, right? Because I wasn't just going to go up to another developer and he was like, you know, who are you? And uh, it's not easy, but at the end of the day, when your references are and you got that repeat client coming back, it feels amazing because you know you're doing something right. Yeah. Totally. No, that, that, that definitely makes sense. And at this point, it sounds like, you know, you've you have a fantastic reputation and folks are, are coming to knock down on your door and, and execute against what you guys are putting out there, um, which, right. which is, you know, totally valid. So you mentioned, you know, some of the labor uh, folks that you work with, um, you know, one of the things that we're seeing in our society is, you know, the push to college degrees and maybe less hands-on trades, but construction relies upon people who work really well with their hands and are able to, to build things creatively. Um, what, how, what is the labor pool like these days? How do you, how do you staff the, the great jobs that you have available with the skill sets available in our society? Um, you know, that, that's an interesting question. And um, before COVID, we were seeing a major shortage of labor. Mm. Now, after COVID, not as much, you know, because people are laying off and, and we are able to pick up workers. Um, but, you know, there was a huge, um, we, we were thinking we're going into crisis mode really because we're not gonna have the amount of workers that we need. And a lot of the, uh, the Texas schools had gotten rid of the, the skills training part of their uh, vocational schools at the high school level. And um, they were all pushing for college, you know, and the reality is that um, we're paying plumbers and electricians 
you know, between 60 to 90,000 a year with student loans, zero student loan debt. I mean, this is a major deal, right? Um, because of the shortage. Um, so it is something that um, we're pushing for as an industry, we're pushing for the high schools to pick up these construction academies because, you know, if the labor goes up, the housing cost goes up to build, it just creates all kinds of other issues that really we, we don't really, we shouldn't have to deal with, right? We should be able to control that if we can bring more workforce into the industry. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, do you feel like there is sufficient labor pool to do what you need to do or are there still shortages in some of the industries? I think that uh, temporarily it's okay. I think in, in you know, after COVID, a, a good six months after that, we're gonna be back in the same boat um, because we're all gonna be busy working like, you know, we love doing, you know. Yeah, one of the things we've seen in Dallas um, with new home construction is, you know, you might have to wait 12 to 18 months. To, you know, you buy a lot, you put the, the house up, but you're going to be waiting because there's just a, a, a skill shortage and the construction companies are overwhelmed right now. And it's probably great for your industry, but are you guys seeing something similar down there or is it a little bit different dynamic? I, I haven't seen the wait of, uh, of 12 months. Um, I mean, everybody is, um, I know like we've had, you know, prior to COVID, it was different. Now with COVID almost what, nine months into the, this, it's, it's been where several projects have been put on hold. I think some of the banking are being stricter about some of the projects that are going out. For sure, the retail side is, you know, not building the hospitality. You're not seeing hotels going up anymore. Um, everybody's looking at affordable housing or multifamily housing as because of the shortage, that's the priority. Um, but I haven't seen any delays of start. I mean, if, if there's investors that are ready to invest, the, the construction is happening within, you know, three to four months as soon as the drawings are done. Mm. It's very quick. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's good for the folks down south then uh, compared yeah. to some of my peers up here in Dallas. I mean, it's good for the workers up here, obviously, because they have a good book of work to, in the future. Um, but, you know, in the, in the past, you know, you mentioned 24 years of experience and, you know, six or four, 14 of that as, as a business owner. Um, I'm interested to explore some of the technology changes that you've seen, like in terms of construction materials or building techniques, what's kind of evolved in the industry since you've started and how is that going to impact, you know, how we build things going forward? I think the technology is something that is always going to be evolving um, from 10 years ago, a big difference. Um, but now it's, it's the, um, the challenging is part is, is us keeping up with all the technology changes, right? Because in construction, it's like, it's not the number one thing we go to, but now the, the younger generation that's coming in, they're coming in with that technology and they want to see it. And uh, our biggest thing is selling it to the clients so that they want to pay for it, right? Because it's those, those are added benefits. But in the long run, um, you're able to build a, a project, you know, and, and walk in with 3D and you can see the walls, the buildings, and you see the issues before you even build it. And you're able to solve problems way before, which saves time. And you're able to um, open up these facilities a lot sooner. Um, it also helps with the maintenance of the facilities because it identifies the things for you, which you're not having to guess. Um, there's so many advantages with, with technology and even, even just the communication side of technology, uh, everything going to apps and you're able to log in from anywhere. So if we have projects in other cities, they're looking at the same files. As soon as you update a file or an, an addendum or something, everybody on the team gets it immediately before you had to physically get it copies to everybody it's like I mean it's an instant um, communication which I think that's something that's going to continue evolving into more and more of that um, schedules are so much easier to update it's they're happening on a daily basis which before they used to be on a monthly basis you know it's mm. that kind of stuff that's instant um I think that, that it's made things easier, um, most definitely has made things smarter for building, right? Yeah. More efficient. 
you mentioned kind of the 3D kind of visualization. Are you all like using AR or VR or what's the technique that you guys instantiate to, to kind of put that preview up for either customers or yourselves? Um, most of it is BIM. Um, but again, uh, we have to get the clients who want to pay for it. A lot of the projects that we've been doing with the federal government, they're not paying for that service. Okay. Um, I think it's going to become less, uh, more, more cost effective. So there, others would want to do it. It's, it's really, it's like the lead certifying. You know, when you, when you want things to be um, um, green, build and stuff, it it costs more, and so it's not as um, the number one thing they go to. It because it's going to cost more, um, but it's so much better for everybody in the long run. But again the cost still drives the, the project. Yeah, for something like LEED, I, I assume there's some materials evolution and technology that's, that's you know, come to the fore. What is the cost differential on like a LEED certified building versus a more traditional one? It's probably a good, um, depends on whether you're, you're gold or silver or, um, I mean, I've seen cost increase a good five to six percent more. Mm. Um, and when you're doing in the millions, it's you know it's a big, big chunk number. Yeah. And what what kind of technology? Again, what kind of building materials or like techniques go into making a building lead certified vice non lead certified? Most of the time, it's it's using products that are more recyclable, right? You're using items that. Um, are either going to protect the earth or, um, or they're recycled. So they're, they're reused uh, items, right? But um, the other thing is that the way that, even the way you do demolition, when we're gonna, you think we're gonna demo and throw things out, we don't just come in and bulldoze the building. You have to split it up and you have to have dumpsters for the different types of materials. So steel will go into one, you know, debris and another and, um, it's, so it just, those type of things have to happen and they take longer to, to do. There's more labor involved. There's more equipment to rent. So those are the things that also add up as, as, you know, lead points, um, when you're building. And so it just, it costs more money. Right. Mm -hmm. And is that the industry standard at this point, or are there still optionality for customers to choose what kind of building they want? Um, it's still an option. Again, it's an ad. It's not, um, it's not your typical uh, construction unless you have a client who says, I, I want to be certified and I, I want to showcase that and, uh, and they'll pay for it. You know? Okay, got it. Well, in addition to running a company, I know you're deeply involved with your community. Um, what kind of community activities are you running to, to help you know, foster um, you know, collaboration or just bring you know, the things that you've learned to, to your broader community? Um, well, I, um, five years ago, I, I, I founded the a nonprofit that's called the Maestro Entrepreneurship Center. And um, I purchased an old elementary school and I turned it into a, a, a business incubation center um, for small businesses to be able to, uh, it incubates up to 50 companies, but we do acceleration training for all, everybody in the community, it's free training. Um, there, if you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to uh, accelerate your business, again, we, we talk about, um, all kinds of training and really what's unique about it is that the, uh, the maestros, what we call the teachers are successful business owners coming back to teach. And so they volunteer, everybody volunteers to teach. And we teach, um, from business management to marketing, to accounting, finance, to uh, technology stuff, to um, you name it, there's all kinds of stuff. And, um, and then they have all kinds of events to connect the businesses and give them exposure. And um, it connects them to all kinds of resources and it's free. And what's happening is that we track the growth of the companies that are coming through the programs. And we're seeing, you know, between 20 to 65% increases in the companies wow. um, in the first six months, which is really good. Um, and then we're also seeing job growth. That, so the companies are growing and they're hiring more, right? And so 
We teach them how to price products and services so that they make money. We teach them how to make sure they pay taxes and you know how to include that in their pricing so they don't get in trouble. Um, so the Maestro Center is something that is very dear to me because as a business owner, there's a lot of trial and error most of the time and there's no reason why we have to go through 10 years of suffering to learn how to do things. And we also know that um, you know, statistics show that small businesses that start up will go out of business. 50% of them will go out of business in five years. Mm -hmm. um, right now with COVID, we're seeing them going out of business in five months. It's wow. really um, a huge thing that's happening. And, and um, the reason I believe so much in it is because, you know, being an entrepreneur changed my life completely. And um, it empowers you as a business owner to, to decide what your business is going to do and, and how you're going to do it. And, and I think it's the best thing that ever happened. And so I just believe wholeheartedly in that. And, um, but more than that, this year I launched um, with my co-partner, uh, the dream on group. And so it's a, it's basically a group of companies uh, for it's real estate development. Um, our Tejas premier building contractor construction and then property management. And so now we're focusing on developing projects that matter for the community. And so it's um, doing the types of projects that are needed in the poorest zip codes of San Antonio, right? Mm -hmm. And so building technology centers or building any type of community um, component to housing or whatever that's being brought in. And those are the kind of projects we're focusing on to make sure that they're happening in those areas. And it's, it's so rewarding when you get to, to build something and, and you get to create something from nothing. And, uh, and then you see how it impacts that whole neighborhood and how everybody now has a better opportunity to, to grow as an, as an individuals. Yeah. That point about building something from scratch and having that tangible artifact is something been on my mind recently. You know, I, I've worked in the services industry and, you know, we create intellectual property, but there's, it's definitely not as tangible and I can't help but wonder, you know, what, what I could do to build something meaningful and physical, like not just work my hands, but, you know, create, you know, experiences or create physical things that people are utilizing and engaging with on a long-term basis. There's just something, there's something deeply human about, about doing that, especially in communities that maybe haven't had that in the past. So I'm curious, when you, you know, started this project in the last year, um, what was the process by which you understood which things were needed where in which communities? I think the biggest thing was understanding um, what was happening in our community, right? What's happening in our city. Um, one of the things that really just stuck with me forever was the fact that um, we talk about the poverty rate in San Antonio, right? That, that there's this huge poverty rate and, and they identify the areas of town that it is, right? You know, the West, the East, the South. Um, and we look at the study from 10 years ago, it looks exactly the same. Hmm. 10 years prior, exactly the same. And we're saying, okay, why hasn't it changed? Well, because we haven't done anything different, right? And so we talk about the poverty rate, but we also talked about the fact that a big chunk of the poverty rate included a working class. They were working and still in poverty. And so to me, I was like, well, if they're working, why are they in poverty? You know, And it's because they don't have the, the high paying jobs or they don't have jobs with benefits. They don't have insurance. They don't have 401k. They don't have the planning part of what we would say a, a good job would be, right? And a lot of the times that goes back to our small businesses, right? Because they don't have the skills to, to grow, they can't afford to provide that. And it's, it's a really a circle of life that happens. And a lot of the times our government says, well, we need the small businesses to do this. Well, we got to first teach them how to do, how to get to that level. You can't just say you got to pay all these things because they'll go out of business again. Right. And we already know that's half of them are going to be there. The other half are struggling or, you know, there's a small percentage that really hits above the one million mark mm -hmm. um, that really learns that 
successful stage and the other 98% are not. And so, which is why the Entrepreneurship Center was so important because we kept saying, we got to spend the time to teach um, and we got to do it in all areas of town that are needed. We can't just say, you know, my neighborhood only. And so um, it, it kind of goes hand in hand, but a lot of the times um, it, they do studies, the government does study and I work with the city, I work with the county directly. And, uh, and I use their, their annual reports and I, when I pull them and we study them and we say, okay, why is this happening? But at the same time, um, if we don't develop programs that are very specific to that need and addressing those needs, it, there won't be any change. And so um, we do as much as we can and we put plans together. And the reality is when, when we're building this type of development, it goes beyond the building, right? We use the building as the, the vessel to, to do the things we're going to do, but the programming is what's so important that's going to happen in that facility. And that's what really makes the changes for the community. And when you partner with the nonprofits, we never duplicate what anybody is offering. We bring them in and, and say, we need you in this area and, you know, and partner with them. And it makes it so much easier because they come in and ignite the area very quickly. It doesn't, we don't need to build it up. It's already available. It's just not in that area. And then we need to do events to educate the community that it's available for them. That, that definitely makes sense. You mentioned, you know, at the beginning of this year, well, not beginning, but when COVID hit, significant businesses went out of business. How have you guys shifted your programming to provide support for those businesses in crises? We, um, we, I want to say like in March, by the second week of March, um, we were having shutdowns in the city. We, our mayor was like shutting down, right? And we, we were supporting that because we, we didn't know what was happening. Um, I also um, was tasked to join the um, economic transition team to represent, you know, San Antonio and, and the small businesses and, and to figure out, you know, how it was impacting and what was going to be happening to help get them back to, to work. Um, but we, we partnered with the health transition team, which was a group of amazing doctors that were telling us, here's what you got to make sure the businesses are protecting to make sure that everybody is safe, right? And so it was really, really tough when um, first we got to think of safety and protect everybody. But we also, on, on the business side, that what our businesses were going through was complete shutdown is not really an option for them to survive. There's, there's nothing coming in. Um, and so some of the programs that were available, like the PPP funding and stuff, um, was going to be what they thought was going to help these businesses. But the reality was that there was a very small percentage of small business owners that took advantage of that program because a majority of them did not have banking relationships and you had to be tied to a bank. And so um, that made it really difficult. And what happened is the businesses that were not established with financial statements or, or you know, the, the payroll tax reporting reports, they were not going to be able to apply, which meant a big majority of the businesses out there were not going to be uh, getting any type of assistance. And so it was going to be really tough. Um, we immediately at the Maestro Center, we transitioned all sessions from in-person to virtual. That was the immediate thing that happened. And then we went to uh, virtual sessions on a weekly basis. And then we went to recording them so they could watch them at any time. It wasn't going to be only once and, and then you're done. Um, and we immediately started covering the programs that were available for them so that they could start getting on and, and they can have direct contact with the people they needed to talk to to apply. Um, we also immediately started looking for programs that would support any uh, rent relief programs for the business owners because the rent relief programs were really just set up for um, residents, not business owners. Um, and then pushing for grants that were going to be at the city and county level for our local businesses. And, and we got a lot of support. They pushed out a lot of funding, which was, was really great. And then it's just getting 
the businesses to apply and, and providing that assistance for them. And as we hit November and, you know, there's some projections that some cities may have to shut back down based on how the, the trajectory grows. Do you see the small business ecosystem in San Antonio recovering or thriving or what, what is the current state right now? Where's it going? Um, I think it depends on, on the industry. I know that the tourist side of hospitality has been hit really hard and that um, will be a while before it recovers. Um, that's probably where the biggest layoffs are coming. Construction has been uh, essential. So a lot of the um, folks are doing construction um, now because everything's shut down. They want it, they want it done. Um, I think restaurants have really struggled. Um, and the reality is that uh, one of the things that we pushed for in the legislation that's coming out for the state, but also um, established an initiative uh, through the Maestro Center. And so we initiated the Buy Local Grow SA initiative. So that encourages uh, the businesses um, to sign up and, and a, in a centralized database so the community can find them and use them and they can provide free advertisement through there. And, um, but really we wanted the community to buy local, buy as much as you can from wherever. And if you have a favorite restaurant, you know, buy from them, even if you're just picking up to help them out because we need them to be there after COVID. And if we don't help them now, they won't be. And as you look to the future for the construction industry and yours in particular, you do a lot of work with the government. Um, but is, you know, is the commercial sector going to be hit the hardest? Is it, is residential going to thrive? Like where are the industries that will change post COVID in the construction world? I think right now what you're seeing, the residential has been doing well because we have a shortage of housing. Um, even the housing market is just keeps uh, increasing price-wise, which is because there is a shortage, there's not enough houses out there. I think that you're going to continue to see the multifamily is also doing really well. Um, the commercial side, um, I think you're not seeing retail space being built because there's so many that are empty and a lot that are actually shutting down. There are some companies that are downsizing in space because they're seeing that the new virtual way is more efficient. Um, and some may stay that way. Some of them um, are struggling because they have uh, single parents at home working with the kids and everything. And it's, it's tough. It's not an easy environment for them to work out of. Um, and they're seeing that as, as a lesson learned as well. And so they have to have those options. Um, so, I mean, I think that we're still kind of all trying to find the new normal of you know, what works best. And um, some things will stick. A lot of the uh, Zoom sessions is uh, very much, we're like, that was pretty easy. We're gonna do an another <laughs> because it's saves on the traveling and all that stuff. And it's, it's uh, you know, it's quicker and you get your meetings done instead of half a day, it's, you know, an hour really, it really is an hour, you know? And so um, that kind of stuff will change. I don't know that, um, it's kind of tough because um, as, as a business owner who's involved in different businesses, like I see the, the different trends happening in, in the different industries. And so um, there's no one way of doing anything, really there isn't. And um, it's just what works best for you and what works best for our employees. And, and just staying flexible is probably the number one thing that that I would say because each one has done different things. Each of our clients have done different things and we're just adjusting to what they are comfortable with and they have a new normal they're trying to establish. And so um, there's no one easy way of doing anything. You know. Mm -hmm. As you guys have transitioned to your new normal, it sounds like, you know, you have the kind of in-house portion where, you know, back at the home office or maybe even at home right now doing virtual stuff, you obviously have the folks in the field who are building things. You, you know, you can't, you can't do that virtually. Um, how has that changed the culture of your organization with the, the different worlds that your employees are playing in now? I think what, what, what made it 
really um, easy for our our employees. At first, um, as I was really worried, you know, I was like, I couldn't sleep at night. I was really worried because, you know, we're shutting down the city, but my workers have to go to work. And so I can't shut down the projects because I'm under contract and they're not releasing us. And so I immediately was on the phone with every single team because I, I needed to know how they felt about it um, so that I could figure out how I was going to react or yeah. respond to what they needed. And um, they were immediately, um, because what we, we implemented the first uh, couple of weeks was our CDC guidelines, what we were going to follow at the job sites to protect everybody. And, you know, the, the temperature checking and the, the gloves and the, the mask and the shields and all that, um, the, the extra washing stations, like that stuff was going to happen anyways. But what could we do to put a little bit of confidence in our employees that they were protected? Um, and so it, it was really just talking to them and asking, you know, how do you feel? This is what we want to do. Is this going to be, you know, an issue if we start rotating crews? Is this going to be okay? And um, you know, everybody responded, they, they were concerned about their families, but they felt protected. And they said, no, if we do this and we're strict about it, we're going to be okay. And, um, and it was that constant communication that really made a difference. Um, but then we started, um, as the months went through May, June, we started to see um, our partners, our, our vendors, our manufacturing companies that manufactured uh, materials for us were shutting down due to COVID and they were having cases in the manufacturing. So guess what? You're not going to get windows and doors for a couple months, you know, which hmm. is going to delay your project or you're not going to get the roof materials or all, that stuff was happening. Um, we were having crews, the whole painting crew was uh, infected. So we got to get them off the job two weeks later you know, bring in another crew. And it, you know, it, it was that kind of stuff that's been happening and we adjust as best as we can, right? And we, we do what we can and then um, put measures in place for when, you know, things go wrong because things will go wrong. And speaking of things going wrong, you know, you've been a business owner through two pretty catastrophic events for the construction industry, you know, the 2008, 2009 crash and now, 2020 and you're still around your company is still thriving it sounds like what have you learned from those crisis experiences as a leader that you've been able to to help your folks out with i think the biggest lessons learned is that especially the first time during recession you know my company was fairly new um i just didn't focus on what everybody else was saying i only focused on what my clients were saying, whoever I was working with, what they were saying is what we were going to do. And, and that's it. I didn't worry about our competitors. You know, if they were saying this is a disaster there, you know, I just, I just said, you know, I'm only going to worry about what's in front of me. I can't control everything else. And so when this happened with COVID, I did the exact same thing. I immediately went to the client first and said, you know, how are you guys doing? What can we do to help? You know, what can we do to adjust quickly because we want to continue working and I have, you know, 50 more behind me. So what are we going to do? And so um, it, it was that kind of communication that made it easier. And the good thing is that, you know, we do have a high repeat client rate. So we know them very well. And uh, at first they were like, we're going home but we don't need the, we don't want the jobs to start. We need them to finish, you know? And so we're like, okay, but there's less people on base. It'll be okay. You know, as long as we're following what we need and um, cell phones became a really big thing. So everybody's phone number, everybody had, you know? And so um, I think to me, that's what made the biggest impact because if I just focused on the media or the news or, um, I would have probably shut my doors and gone home because I would have been so afraid. Mm -hmm. And um, that's not, that was not what I did. And I was telling my guys, I immediately send them the video of who moved my cheese. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, because um, I said, all right, our cheese has been moved. You guys, we got to figure out, you know, what are we going to do? And so our management team immediately were, 
they were laughing and they were saying, yeah, this is the who moved our cheese. I said, yeah, I mean, it's, and we're, and it's going to be a while until we figure out where that cheese is, you know? And so um, we just uh, adjusted. And the good thing is that, you know, we, we are such a close knit. We, we have Monday meetings every Monday and that's team meetings. And we, we hear what's happening, what's going on, what do you need? And it makes a big difference, you know, because mm -hmm. they count on the fact that they have a voice and that we're going to do something to respond to it. And so I think that that makes it easier. Well, it sounds like you're building more than a business. You're also building a culture and mm -hmm. one that drives community and folks working together and watching out for each other, sure. which will, you know, augment the profits, but also creates that, that, that community that's so critical, you know, probably 20 or 30 minutes ago, you mentioned that being an entrepreneur changed your life. Um, and what we're seeing in our society is that there are fewer and fewer entrepreneurs. Um, you've probably seen the numbers where folks aren't as willing to go into the entrepreneurial uh, space. And, you know, our country is driven by innovation. So what would you tell the young person or even the older person thinking about making the jump into starting a business, whether it's small or a startup or whatever? Um, what was your experience and why was it so impactful for you? Um, I want to say because I come from, you know, my, both my parents are immigrants. So I came from a very humble home, you know, and my father was an entrepreneur and, um, small business owner. And so as a kid, I remember I would love to go and he, he owned an auto shop. And so he repaired cars and transmissions and he was well known in the neighborhood because he would help them. They couldn't pay. He's like, payment. Don't worry. Let's get you back to work. You know, that was his thing all the time. And I remember that he, you know, it was Wednesday or Thursday and he's like, help me count this cash because I got to pay the workers. And so I would sit there and help. I was the accountant and I was probably eight or nine years old mm -hmm. and I, I totally loved it. And I would like, this is for the taxes and this is for the materials. And so I would separate for him and, um, made it easier. And, um, I remember that when I was talking to my dad about starting this company, he was so excited about the fact that I was going to do it. He's like, don't even think about it. Just go do it. Just go, <laughs> go, you know? And, uh, and he said, you're so much more, um, you have so, so much more skills than, than he did. You know, my dad had sixth grade education. And so he said, you, you know, so many more people and you, and, and you love people like they're going to love working with you. And so um, he encouraged it to happen. And uh, I remember that um, I was I was excited and afraid at the same time because I thought, oh, my God, what am I doing? And but then in my mind, I thought, you know, I'm a glorified, you know, a CFO or whatever. I can get a job anywhere if it doesn't work out. You know, mm -hmm. if I don't try, I will never know. And I was, I was 35 and I just thought, you know, when you're, when you're at that age, it, you know, it's, it's like my, my good friend always, it's do or die. You get in there, you, you get, you're going to do it. You're not going to die. You just get in there, you know? And so you're going to find your way and in entrepreneurship, there's, there's no one way of doing anything. And I remember that um, having the, the, the responsibility to make decisions that were going to impact the whole company was like, I'd love that part of it because you were creating the vision of what you were going to be known for. Mm -hmm. Right. And what you wanted your customers to remember, but your vendors that were your partners, they were going to know you for the same thing. Right. And what you did to help and what you did to provide. And I don't know how many times that, they would come in and say, I need to get paid. I need to do payroll. And we weren't going to get paid till another three weeks. Right. And so there I was like, okay, let me see what I have and let me try to help you. And I would split it up and I would say, okay, you're covered. You're covered. All right, let's go to the next week. Right. And so, mm -hmm. um, it was that kind of stuff that really, you know, does that hope happen in big corporate? No, it doesn't happen in big corporations, but and when you're building community and you're building um, the people you're going to work with, you're going to help because if they're successful, you're successful. And, and we all kind of needed that. Um, so it, it 
made it so much easier to, to participate. And so I remember that as my company started growing and I was advancing very fast and some of the company owners would come in and they would say, I mean, what are you doing? Because you've been in business two years or like three years. And they were like, I've been in business 15 years. How did you do all this? And I was like, you know, I don't know. I just kept going. You know, I was just, <laughs> I, I didn't look back. I just said, okay. And if something didn't work, I would change it. You know, I wouldn't sit on it. I was like, we're either going to win or we're going to learn from it, you know, and, and we got to get in there. And so that was something that was really big on my part. And I just, you know, you, you don't know everything. You don't, there's no way that you're going to know every answer, but you're expected to know every answer. And yep. so um, you just do your best. And sometimes I would tell the guys, well, what do y'all think? You know, and being the only woman in the room, it was like, I needed, they needed to trust me and I needed to trust them. And if I didn't believe it, I would say it. And I didn't have a problem saying, you know, that didn't sound right. You know, or you got to explain a little bit more because I'm not, I'm not believing that. And so um, I had to build that loyalty within your team right away, you know? And so I, I remember that. And I remember that I was trying to get competition to compete on some projects and I would get some really high prices from my subcontractors and they were like, she's new. <laughs> you know, I had to call him up and I would say, Hey, my money is great too. You know, you got to yeah. give me a good price. I can get in there. You help me out. I'm going to get you on this job, you know? And so they would, they would laugh and they would like, all right, all right, let me, let me, <laughs> let me, let me look at my number one more time. You know, I said, this is a high number. I'm going to lose the job, you know? And so, um, negotiating had to be a skill that, you know, I, I couldn't be afraid to call and say this, you know, I need a better number. Yep. You know, and so that was something that um, I just, and, and fortunately, I'm not a real shy person. You know me, I'm, I mean, I'm very opinionated about everything and <laughs> I, I'm i not a good liar. So, you you know, I'm not going to lie about anything because I'm like, I'm not good about it. Just yeah. it's not, it's not going to happen. Um, and so um, I just do my best. I don't, I don't know everything. And, and I just, if it doesn't feel right, I just don't do it. You know, that's, that's just how I go, you know. I love it. Well, Jalissa, you are an inspiring person, both in your professional world in the construction industry and all through what you do in your community. And I'm so grateful we got to spend the last hour together. Unfortunately, our time has come to an end, but thank you so much for what you do. And especially in this unpredictable COVID world, helping out the small business in San Antonio while running a company. Fantastic conversation. And uh, thanks again for your time tonight. Thank you. All right. We'll talk to you soon. This okay. has been another edition of A Random Walk with Ben Coleman. We'll see you next week. Cheers.